Thank you. Nick. Thank you. It's a good day. It's over 50 degrees. <laughs> and climbing. <clears throat> so, no, it's a good day. It's been a good week here at North Central. John, i so nice to see you. I, I love these videos that we have been seeing through the year. Um, graduates of North Central and uh, going around the world to make a difference for the kingdom of God and those videos. I don't know who came up with that idea. It was a supernaturally inspired idea and uh, have enjoyed it. And also throwing our weight and our support behind those who are really going ahead of us to uh, do the kinds of things um, you will all be doing in not many days hence. So it's good to see you. God bless you and bless your ministry there. Well, it's been a good week at North Central, days of change and uh, transition, optimism. We've had a very good week, and um, this is a week we've been looking forward to for quite some time to finally reveal the unknown and have the unknown become known and the future become clear. Been a good week in a lot of ways. The preaching in chapel, Ben Peterson just did a great job on Monday. And then the introduction of the president-elect and his wife, Scott and Karen Hagan. The, uh, the Pentecostal think tank, that turned out to be really good. The pastors forum, the panel. Heath Adamson yesterday, just great. And now to top it all off, <laughs> I'm going to share my heart with you with regard to the uh, ongoing theme of this year's uh, preaching, and that is the presence of God in our lives. The uh, worship song that we did together, it's, uh, it's a declaration. Think of the words. It's a declaration. Christ is enough. It's not that I hope He will be, maybe He might be, the Bible says He should be, or something like that, but a declaration. Jesus is enough. He's all I need. That's an older hymn. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. Christ is enough for me. One little housekeeping item I'm going to share on the uh, principles of spiritual vitality, meaning life, and revitalizing, which we can call revival. And when we use the word revival, we often get images of mass movements of people, and revival certainly can be a mass movement, but I've been trying to focus on what is happening in the heart of an individual when there is a spiritual reviving process and result. Okay, can I just repeat that? What's really going on inside an individual when there is the process of spiritual revitalizing? And uh, what are the results of that? And so, spiritual revival, revitalizing, renewal, these words, it's what's happening on the inside of an individual. And if that happens in a large group of people, then you can have a mass movement. And those are the things that are historically known as the Welch Revival, the Azusa Revival, the Pensacola Revival, New Hebrides Revival, when you have a whole lot of people experiencing the same thing. <clears throat> but the wonderful thing about spiritual life, it's not dependent on a big group around you. 
It's only dependent upon the reality of Jesus in you. Okay? That's a good sentence. Could I say that again? The whole idea of a spiritual revival is not dependent on a big group around you. It's the reality of spiritual principles operating deep within you. And you can be in a group that's dead as a dodo and be entirely spiritually alive yourself. Now, it can be hard. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's a good thing when the church goes together and you get some camaraderie and some help, support. People who think the same, pray the same, live the same, encourage one another, and so we need the body of Christ. But I, I say that to try to highlight this principle. Don't wait for some tsunami of humanity to wash you into spiritual vitality. You can enter in yourself every single day and live in the reality that Christ is present. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to conclude by calling us to prayer as we do every Friday because a life of prayer is one of the fundamental principles for ongoing spiritual life and vitality. And then I am going to leave and go pick up my wife and take her to her surgeon. So I wanted to just tell you that so that I can be sure that when I've called you to prayer and then I leave, you won't think, what a hypocrite. You know, he just called us to prayer and now he's going to lunch. No, I'm not going to lunch. <clears throat> but um, so when I slip out, you'll know I'm going to... My wife's had surgery on her hand twice. First surgery didn't work. Infection set in. The tissue deteriorated. The surgical reconstruction of her tendons uh, came apart, so they had to do it again. So I'm taking care of her today. That's my, uh, that's my, I was going to say, I won't even say what I was going to say. That's my uh, uh, errand for the noontime. So I'll slip out. Uh, pray for Diane. She's really struggled with these physical issues of surgery. But then we will come together for prayer, and by the time I have shared this message, I hope that it'll uh, increase our understanding of the necessity, the value, and the results of a life of prayer. Last time I shared, I outlined the three phases of revival. I will rehearse those just so very briefly now. Three facets, three phases, three sequential sets of experiences that lead to what should be permanent spiritual vitality, life, Christ in me. Christ is enough for me. Christ is all I want. I've lost my appetite for the things of the world. So well said. So perfectly said. I don't have an appetite for the things of the world. I live in the world. I'm not of it now. I'm in it, and I love it as Jesus did. I want to be a part of bringing the kingdom to the lost, of course. But it's not in my soul as an affection. It's in my soul as a spiritual passion for the kingdom's sake. And our affections then are entirely bound up in the principles of the kingdom, our relationship with God, the work of the Holy Spirit, our deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, the kingdom of God physically present in the church, our love for the church, for the brothers and sisters, the body of Christ. And uh, that makes us whole and healthy and productive people in the world. Well, there are three phases. The first phase of developing this kind of vitality or life is what I call reach up. Reach up, second phase, receive, third phase, reach out. So those three little sets of words are very easy to remember. Reach up, uh, 
That means prayer, um, receive, that's fill me, and then reach out, ministry. Okay, very simple, but uh, there's a lot, there, that, those uh, little skeletons, a lot of meat to hang on those bones, which we will be doing. Reach up, cleanse me. Receive, fill me. <clears throat> Reach out, use me. And revival is not simply a time of uh, enthusiasm and excitement. While one particular phase of it, phase two, is pretty exciting. That's a run, jump, shout, hoot, holler, shiver, quake, shake, fall down, jump up, run around, go to church all day, pray all night. Uh, I mean, it's a, it, those are exciting periods of time. And when you read the history of revival, the focus is usually on phase two. That's what you'll read about um, in the Welch Revival. Uh, farmers walking to the barn, and the glory of God would fall upon them, and they would fall prostrate, and, and uh, then get up and go to church, and the glory, you know, they report these um, very wonderful and unusual things. But you have to understand, those unusual periods are always short-lived, they are periodic, because they're not the whole of spiritual life. I was going to say the whole enchilada, but they're not the whole of spiritual life. They are a part of it, and some people, <clears throat> they would like to live constantly in phase two. Run, jump, shout, hoot, holler. Uh, phase two is something like an emergency room at a hospital. It's an exciting place. Lives are saved, and, and a flurry of activity, and death is uh, avoided, and life is provided, and it's wonderful. But you're not supposed to live your whole life in the emergency room you see. So do these little metaphors kind of help? Uh, my older son is an emergency room doctor. That's an exciting thing. But listen, you don't want to say the same people in there day after day after day having car wreck after car wreck after car wreck and broken leg after broken leg after broken leg. You hope that at some time they'll get healthy and you'll never see them again. Right? And so I have said I'm actually opposed to revival. Because the first thing you need to have a revival is something that was alive and died and needs to be brought to life again, and I'm against death. So why can't we just have vival? See? Ongoing spiritual vitality. And there are reasons why we do not fulfill what is really the will of God for us, and that is to live constantly in the life of Christ, the affections of the world, the opposition of the devil our own human nature. There are so many things that can occur in our lives that then make a revitalizing process necessary. How many of you have ever been in an emergency room? Right? Okay, probably just almost everybody. I have. Didn't want to go there, hauled there by an ambulance. I'm glad there were people there who knew what they were doing, and I'm glad I got in, got out. I don't want to spend my life there. And I especially don't want to live with the kinds of conditions that would put me there, you see. So the context for all of this about spiritual vitality has to do <clears throat> with a desire or goal to live constantly in the presence of Jesus. Let me give you a smattering of verses, and uh, you could write these down. I don't have these on PowerPoint this morning, but you know how to write, so you can jot them down. You know how to memorize. You can memorize them. Um, let me just read them to give you a bit of a, just a, a textual 
theme that will give us a good starting point here. Ezekiel 48, 35, speaking of the <clears throat> new heavenly city. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about. Name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Now we had the three-part series with Buzz Brookman, Brookman, Amy Anderson, Phil Mayo. Outstanding job of presenting this whole thing of the union of the human makeup with the divine nature of God. That's what they were dealing with. The presence of God, that, that we are the dwelling place of God upon the earth. Individually, our physical body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So take care of it, keep it clean, have it be a good temple and dwelling place for God. Corporately, the church is the dwelling place of God. And back here in the Old Testament, there's certainly not the first time nor the last that this thought will be outlined. But the Lord is there. Revelation 21.3, Phil Mayo used this verse. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the, the tenting place. Amy Anderson dealt with that. The covenant relationship of the tabernacle. God will tabernacle with us. He will camp out with us. He will dwell with us. Tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Colossians 1.27, Paul picks it up in many places, but here he says, God is will, has willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Moses on the mountain, I want to see your glory. God said, can't do that, it will kill you. Just a brief glimpse, in fact, will light you up. Those two chapters, when Moses came off the mountain, the skin of his face was glowing, for he had been in the presence of God. And although it, I don't want to ruin the point with a bit of humor, but it, it's like being nuked and glowing in the dark. The power of the presence so great that he began to glow in the dark, and the people were afraid because of his glowing in the dark. Well, I would think so. This has to do with the power and the glory of God. But there's another passage at the dedication of the temple when Solomon prayed the dedicatory prayer. And he said in 2 Chronicles 6.18, 2 Chronicles 6.18, now they've built the temple, they're going to dedicate it, but Solomon says, will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And through the balance of that prayer and that chapter, about six times, Solomon says, to paraphrase his prayer, we have a problem, and the problem is sin. Oh God, hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive our sin so you might inhabit this dwelling place. You know, he's throwing cold water on the dedication in some sense, but he's also recognizing God has a plan to dwell on earth with us, but there's a huge problem. Sin prohibits that from happening. So the glorious news is God has a solution for the sin problem. And our sins can be forgiven, washed away, and we can then be made fit habitation 
for the presence and the glory of God. Now that's great news. Say great news. Great news. So can God dwell on earth with the likes of you and me? Absolutely. That is his plan. So spiritual revitalizing and revival is dealing with issues in our lives that make us insensitive to the presence of God, that make it impossible for God to actually work in us and through us because of all of the factors that uh, are obstacles to the work of God. And that will be the focus of today's message. That is phase one, reaching up, cleaning up, and making the tabernacle fit for God's habitation. <clears throat> what would Jesus do? I've, I've used this, and I remind you of it again because I think it's a, a good thing to be a spiritual reminder to us. What would Jesus do? You know, you have a situation, you say, what would Jesus do? That's a, that's a good map. That's a good image. What would he do? Okay, I will endeavor to do the same thing. That's a very good thing. However, it has its limitations. Um, first of all, you might not know, but even if you did know, would you be able to do it? See, Would you be able? What, what would be working in you to make you able to mimic Jesus? All right. So I've rephrased, and I have not yet manufactured all of these new bracelets that do not say WWJD, but mine says WWYDIKYJWRBY. <clears throat> okay, that's my bracelet. <clears throat> What would you do if you knew Jesus were right by you? <clears throat> okay. And that's, that's a different thing. Now, even then the word know, we could change to feel. What would you do if you felt the presence of Jesus at all times? Remember one of the messages I had, some people come up and they put their hands on my head, my shoulders, and... And it has an impact on your behavior when you feel and sense the presence of other people. People will do things alone in the dark they would never do in public in the light. People will do things alone when they don't feel the presence of God they would never do if they were feeling Jesus being right there. So part of spiritual vitality, and here is a key phrase for this message, spiritual life and maturity, deeply sensitive to Constantly responsive to the presence of God. Deeply sensitive, constantly responsive. That's a good place to be spiritually. But do you know it is possible to become insensitive? Anybody know that? To become insensitive to, how about the principles of the Bible? How about the, the principles of the life of Christ? How about the way our conscience works or does not work? How about doing things we shouldn't and feeling bad sometimes and then doing the same things and not feeling bad? We're a complex mess as human beings. Our conscience, our sensitivity to spiritual things, self-interest, worldly interest, appetites for the things of the world, excuse-making, rewriting theology, reinterpreting scriptures so they fit what we do instead of what we ought to do. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So three phases, reach up, that is clean up, receive, that is fill up, and reach out, ministry, and that is God use me. <clears throat> the, um, when I got saved as a child, <clears throat> a 
Sunday night in a very small church in Baird, Nebraska. 30 battle-hardened, rapture-ready, totally sanctified saints on a Sunday night. And the pastor gave a salvation altar call. <laughs> and I, he, here's what he said. Do you want Jesus to come into your heart? That was the altar call. Do you want Jesus to come into your heart? I did. So I raised my hand. My grandfather, Roland R. Roberts, turned to me and said, Gordon, do you know what you're doing? I said, yes. Now, I had barely a clue. I actually did know. I knew something was wrong. I needed Jesus. I wanted him in my heart. I didn't have a lick of theology or Bible knowledge or, you know, all of that stuff. But listen, your soul knows something, right? Your inner being knows something. I need Jesus. I said yes. So my grandfather allowed me to move in front of him and go down the altar. <clears throat> and all the pastor did is wave at me to go over to the side of the building, steal Samsonite chair, bow down, and I prayed that prayer, Jesus come into my heart. And he did. He did. And I sensed, felt the entrance of Jesus Christ into my soul as a child. Just interestingly, 50 years later, my parents died 25 days apart in 2002, and we had the funeral in the same church. And same furniture, same rug, same pews, same building, not the same people. <clears throat> but uh, it, was, it was really a wonderful time for me because I was born again in that church at the end of that altar, and we had funeral for both my parents there in the same building. So that little place is a special place in my life, of my own spiritual life and uh, just family history. The, um, the idea, let Jesus come into your heart, simple, almost childish, but it is the singular most profound reality of our Christian experience. We were not the people, we were separated, we were alienated, we were cut off, we had no hope, we did not have God, and then Christ. And now we are in, we belong, we're part of the family, and Christ dwells in us richly. What is this phase one all about? <clears throat> Put together a number of words to characterize what I call reach up or clean up. Seek, knock, ask, pray, fast, wait, Terry, which is an old-fashioned word for wait. Question, wrestle, probe, pry. Ask God, God to search me, bend me, break me, clean me, use me. <clears throat> Some ways it's a wrestling match with God, but it's not really with God. It's kind of a wrestling match with self in the presence of God. And it is a prayer for God to do something that you fundamentally don't want to do. And that is give up control of your life. To give up the things that stand between you and Jesus. To give up attitudes, affections, behaviors, patterns. To give up all of those things that are not conducive to spirituality. And it is a powerful wrestling match, as we all know. Right? <clears throat> when we say... <clears throat> I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And then you find that the following means changing your patterns a little bit, and you hardly get the words out of your mouth till you start turning back to the old patterns, to the 
things that were standing in the way that you had in your life and you love to have in your life. Right? So, all to Jesus I surrender. Great prayer, hard to do. All to him I freely give. Okay? So we pray that prayer. Jesus said, you serious? I say, I'm deadly serious. He says, great. Glad to hear it. We're making progress. So, what do you want to give up right now? Nothing. Okay. Well, let me give you just one little thing to give up. That's good. Fine. I I want to be spiritual. Good. And then he can name anything, and the war starts. Change your schedule. Change your friendships. Change the way you spend your money. Change the way you pay your bills. Change the way you talk about people. (laughs) I mean, you just pick it, right? Couldn't we make a rather massive list of the things God talks to us about? The minute he does, often what we do is we say, you know, I should, I want to. That's right. I feel the conviction. I accept that conviction. I embrace, I admit, I confess. Oh, God, do it. Does anybody in this building know that it's hard to change spiritually? Does anybody? Am I the only one that struggled with this? No, we all struggle with it. So often you will hear that in a period of time in revival, there will be two years of prayer meetings before the revival breaks out. What that really means is there's two years in phase one before phase two arrives, all right? But this is powerful spiritual activity. It's not exciting. It's kind of painful. It can be very wearisome to pray that prayer. Search me, Lord, and see if there be any ungodly way in me. Convict me, Lord. Deal with me. Change me. Reorient my life. You know, that's not exciting. That's not the kind of stuff that you put on videos. You know, exuberant revival services. But let me tell you, it is a powerful, intrinsic part of reviving activity. Because you know what? A lot of people are not doing that. A lot of people are really not praying those prayers regularly. And in my next couple of points, I'll show you those who may be the most likely not to be praying that way. So this is a profound, deep, and meaningful spiritual activities, activity. And you read the history of revival The Welch Revival, led largely by Evan Roberts, they had two years of prayer meetings before the revival broke out in 1904. But there were two years of gatherings where they were praying prayers like this, Lord, change us, do anything, Uh, we embrace your will, we'll we'll do anything, we'll modify our lives, have your way, you know, they prayed for two years like that, and then, boom, you could say phase two. But phase one was a powerful period. When Frank Bartleman was a part of the leadership of the Azusa Revival, which went from 1906 to 1909, he wrote Evan Roberts before Azusa ever broke out. Isn't it even interesting how we use the language? Uh, We don't say Azusa began. I mean, that's too weak. Like it broke out and God fell. But uh, Bartleman wrote Roberts, said essentially, how do you get a revival? Roberts wrote back and said, get the people to praying. And what is not largely reported is that two years before the Azusa revival broke out is that people were meeting in those 
various meetings, Bonnie Bray Mission, the Upper Room Mission, the New Testament Mission, Zeusa Street Mission, they were praying for a couple of years, and the reporters didn't show up, and the headlines were not written, but God was at work. And then in 1906, and so I would say, that's when phase two broke out, and uh, that's a more visible phase. John Kilpatrick, uh, pastor of the church in Pensacola, Florida, a recent revival, 1995 to 2003, reports that for two years before the Father's Day breakthrough, breakout, 1995, they were praying. Why two years? Here's why. It takes time to work through the obstacles in our lives. We do not give them up easily, readily, quickly, with a cooperative spirit. We want to, but we're very much like Paul. The good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. The good that I want to do, I just... How am I going to escape this bondage? The good, to do the good is present in me. But to get it done is totally absent. Oh, God. And so the process of praying, probing, prying, questioning, wrestling, waiting, tarrying, and asking God, fasting, giving God time to begin the softening, tenderizing, modifying, you know, let's just find all the words we can find to apply to this. God is at work in us when we're praying those prayers, as feeble and clumsy as they may be, as hard as it is to find the right words, unless it's when a very distinct and specific conviction comes upon us, right? Stop stealing, Okay, and then we have the right language. But generally, I want to be like Jesus. It's such a vague concept. We find it hard to find the right words. And so it takes time to work that through. It takes time to give up. It takes time to give in. It takes time to win a permanent victory. I am not here making an excuse for anybody for failure. I would not want to do that. But one of the problems in spiritual life is some people expect immediate victories and then become disappointed if they have a setback and feel, God failed, the Bible's a lie, the church is a fraud, this doesn't work, or I'm not cut out for it. All kinds of bad things happen when people become engaged in spiritual warfare for their own well-being and find that it's hard, and sometimes in the battle you get punched right in the face and knocked flat on your back, and you have to get up and get going again. And so sometimes I feel I might make a mistake or error on the side of grace. But when you make a start for the kingdom and you slip and you fall, not to excuse failure, but to understand it. This is a powerful battle. You're fighting your Adamic nature. You are fighting the devil. You are fighting the forces of evil and wickedness. You should not expect continuous, absolute, unrelenting, un, uh, uh, total, complete victory, 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 victory. Nobody will help anybody who's never struggled and failed and knows what it is to Pray through, get through, work it through, work it out, be built up in Christ. I I hope that makes sense. 
So if you have a heart to follow God, and you do, that's why you're here, um, <clears throat> then you fail. Understand, you are in a war for your soul and its eternal destination, and it is not an easy war. Why two years? <clears throat> Self-interest fights the work of spiritual interest. Self is the center of sin. Me first, everything else later, including God. Me first. What I want, my way, my will, my kingdom, my comfort, my pleasure, my money. It's, it's rooted in me first. Second thing, immaturity. <clears throat> Babies are tyrants. If you haven't had any yet, get braced. <clears throat> Babies are tyrants. They will wake you in the middle of the night screaming bloody murder um, until you get it. Wake up, get out of bed, and do exactly what they want you to do, and they'll drive you crazy until you relent, cave in, submit, and obey. They are tyrants, monsters. I had two of them. I don't want any more. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay. But no, think of, think of a little baby in bed. I'm hungry. They don't do anything in a delicate way. They just scream bloody murder. Immaturity, spiritual immaturity, is totally counter to spiritual development. No longer children, the Bible says. In fact, this theme is throughout the Bible. That you don't be babies anymore, tyrants. That you don't be children anymore, blown about with every wind of doctrine. You grow up into Christ, you grow into the full stature of the image, you become conformed to the image. The point is, the growing process uh, is necessary because childishness, immaturity, is totally antithetical to spiritual vitality. And so you have to work through the immaturity of things. Sometimes, if you ever have anybody tell you, oh, just grow up, Really, that's actually, that's a good theological thing. Why don't you just grow up? Quit being a baby. Grow up. The third one is a very powerful one. <clears throat> and this is one that we are susceptible to given the nature of our surroundings here. Religion actually fights God. Spirituality does not fight God, but religion is a deficient form of spirituality. Let me say that again. Religion is a degenerate, deficient form of spirituality. It's rules and regulations without life. It's organization without purpose. It's all kinds of very bad things. And human beings and the church is susceptible to religion. This is difficult to deal with, but any spiritual organization with some history will have to fight and will fight tendencies to become religious without being spiritual. Scribes and the Pharisees, the strongest words, the harshest words Jesus had were not for prostitutes and criminals. Who were those words for? The religious scribes and Pharisees. The language is absolutely horrific what he calls them. The people of God, the people who were trained in the law, the people who studied the law, who taught the law, preached the law, who had the organization, who had the, the, the garb, the appearance, they had everything that pertained to the things of God, and Jesus had the strongest words for them. John 11 is one of the most insightful chapters in the Bible. I'll just paraphrase it. 
Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Scribes and Pharisees get together and say, we've got a problem. If he keeps doing these signs, now they, they didn't say this magic stuff, or if he keeps tri tricking the people. A dead man was raised, they saw it, they knew it, and they called it. If he keeps doing these signs, we're in trouble. The Romans are going to take away our privileges. We're going to lose our people. We're going to lose our place. What are we going to do? High priest Caiaphas says, you don't know what you're talking about. The Bible says, he did not speak this of his own. He prophesied to the scribes and Pharisees that it was the plan of God that one man should come and die for the entire nation. And they said, well, all of that aside, let's kill him. Now, if you want to see the essence of religious organization, I didn't say spiritual, I said religious. Right there it is. You can watch miracles, you can hear prophecies, and you set that off against having position, pay, privilege, and you will decide to kill the Messiah, and in John 12, kill the evidence too, let's kill Lazarus and get him back in the grave so we can keep what we have. I could spend an hour or a half hour or 15 minutes or two minutes on this, but I hope you catch this. The Assemblies of God has 100 years of history. That provides plenty of opportunity for the elements of religion to become a part of the spiritual battle for spirituality. In fact, you could read this in social history with Oswald Spengler, uh, with Gibbon, uh, the others who have written about entire civilizations who go through a process of turning from value and community effort to self-centered, self-seeking, and the whole civilization dies. The historians have identified this in nations. It's a principle of humanity, and it happens. Anything that's older than about 10 years will have to deal with the religious instincts that will set in. Here's why. Because when a movement becomes organized, there will be jobs, positions, there will be pay, there will be programs, there will be privilege, there will be prestige. Those five Ps, okay, and those, that's not forced alliteration, it just happened to turn out that way. But pay, position, programs, prestige, privilege. And when God wants to do something, like bring the Messiah to an entire nation, it will run right up against the obstacle of people who are so deeply entrenched in their position, their pay, their privilege, and their program that they will fight God, kill the Messiah, destroy the evidence to keep their job. And those of us who are people of the church we probably don't have to fight too much the spirit of prostitution where we're running the streets in the middle of the night selling our bodies for sex for money. That's probably not our biggest problem here, I hope. <clears throat> or drug addiction or alcohol addiction or robbing liquor stores or... You, you, what would be the single greatest challenge you and I would face? What's the single greatest challenge I face as a 70-year-old who has pay, program, position, privilege, 
and power. It's to subordinate those things to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because every time God wants to make a change, it means I have to make a change. And the old Adamic nature says, I don't change, I want what's good for me. And the devil says, hooray for you, that's the way to do it. And all the principalities of hell are arrayed against cooperating with the Spirit. Don't you understand that language? But it's reality. <clears throat> do you escape it? Listen. In time, you learn how to win victories over these things. You learn how to fight those fights and not cave into your own selfish interest. But it is a race, it is a fight, it is a war. And there is victory. I will tell you there is victory. But the war never goes away. And the price to be paid in fighting that war can be very painful and acute. I've had three major episodes in my life. I don't have time to tell about it now. Briefly, took a church in Portland where they had a bus ministry, which is good, and a radio ministry, which is good. They hadn't paid the bills on them for 10 months. Everybody had quit those ministries. Nobody wanted to participate in those ministries. But two key people had their whole lives wrapped up in those ministries. They were being paid to do it. They had a program to do it. They had a position to do it. They had privileges to do it. And they would not relent. I got a call on Thanksgiving Day from an attorney threatening to sue the church because we hadn't paid the radio leases. I went to the board and I said, nobody wants to do this and we haven't paid the bills for 10 months. What should we do? Oh, you can't touch those things. Those people will get mad. I said, how many of them are there? Well, just a few. Well, who's going to pay for it? Everybody thinks it's important. Nobody will pay for it. Who's going to pay for it? Well, nobody. Who's going to do it? Nobody. Well, how about this? How about if we don't do it anymore? <clears throat> so the board voted to stop those two ministries. And within a few weeks, 60 people left the church because we stopped two ministries nobody wanted to participate in, nobody wanted to pay for, but two key people marshaled their forces to oppose that decision. I've been through that war. Missions. We became involved in missions in a war because of, and I'm not, it'll sound like I'm talking negatively. I'm not talking negative. I'm telling you the truth about human beings and religious organizations. It's just there. You get ready to deal with it. Everybody who has 10 years or more of experience in the music business or in the missionary business or in the education business or in the church business, four people right there can tell their own stories. This is the war for spirituality in the body of Christ. We've all been there. <clears throat> there was a war for power in missions. We were asked to serve, so we agreed to do so. Within a few months, that whole thing blew so sky high, the rector resigned, the whole prog program was totally demolished. They asked me to take it over. <clears throat> I said, I'll take it over under this circumstance. Let me write a constitution and bylaws, and if you like it, I'll do it. I wrote a constitution and bylaws for that organization which put me, the director, under the authority of the missionary apparatus on the field, so Nick, you would especially have an understanding, <clears throat> put me under the authority of the missionary apparatus instead of over all of that missionary apparatus. They all said, this is wonderful. This is great. We kicked it loose, and it worked. Why? Because I didn't come in desiring to have the whole power structure under my thumb. I came in willing to serve under Greg Mundus and Omer Byler. And the reason we have friendships today, the reason I'm looking at you, Nick, you know the history. <clears throat> I have some of my dearest friends or people 
that I subordinated my leadership to in writing a constitution and bylaws for the sake of the church, all right? And I've had others here. It's always the same story. When you run up against pay, position, program, power, privilege, and prestige, you're going to have a war in your own soul. Because ongoing spirituality means ongoing change, ongoing daily crucifixion, ongoing daily denying yourself and putting the church first instead of yourself first, putting the kingdom first instead of yourself first. And if you will do that, you will have a wonderful life and ministry with the blessing of God upon it. And if you don't, you will end up being a self-centered, self-seeking, religious or marketplace monster, always looking out for yourself instead of looking out for the body of Christ. Listen, where's the win? The win is the church. The win is the kingdom. The win is the kingdom of God. The win is to come under instead of try to lord it over. <clears throat> so the reason I mention that, you're in a school that's a part of a religious organization. You're in classes. You're looking for a future. Could I say to you, don't look for a job. Look for an opportunity to serve. Don't look for a place to get paid. Look for a place to give your life. God will see you get paid. Don't look for position. Look for a place just to pour out your life for the good of others. God has so many of those places. He'll bless you there. Don't worry about your privileges. Don't count up your perks. Don't count up all of those things. Just say, God, put me there, use me there, take care of me there. And you know what? I promise you, on 50 years of experience, he will do it. He's better at it than you are. And you'll be a much nicer person to be around to boot. Amen. Let's stand together. <clears throat> and let's go to prayer. <clears throat> All right. So we're going to pray. We're going to have communion like we do. We'll anoint with oil like we do. We're going to pray. Now, every single person in this room has something to pray about, something that you need to get under the authority of the kingdom of God, and you don't want to because you're just like me. You're human. All right? But pray. And if you subordinate it and the kingdom comes, the glory of God will come, and you'll live in victory. It could be any number of things. You can enumerate your own list. I faced something yesterday that uh, I'll be making a decision about that has to do with this very thing. It's a daily operation of being a person in the kingdom. This last word, part of the reason that I am so supportive of and affirm and I'm excited about the leadership of Scott Hagen is because he's been here. He's done this. He understands spiritual leadership. He understands principles of the kingdom. He and I talked this week, just this week, about some of these things. And um, <clears throat> with that kind of leadership, I can be very, very affirming of the future of this school. We will win. The kingdom will come. The glory will fall. And God will be blessed, and we will be blessed. Amen. Heavenly Father, now we're going to pray. Change us, mold us, make us, bend us, break us, modify us, reshape us, build us into the stature and the image of Jesus, and give us grace to get through these little battles one after another after another until we are built up fully into the image and stature of Christ, fully conformed, and then use us, Lord. Amen, amen, amen. Pastor Doug, come and lead our prayer time. I'm going to take Diane to the hospital. You pray, and uh, God will bless you, and I'll see you next week. Lead us, would you?